Hey, I'm Pastor Joel, and I just want to say thank you for downloading or streaming this message today. My prayer for you is that you're blessed by the content that you hear. As a church, our desire is to make disciples of Jesus, and we do that by helping people to trust and follow Him in every aspect of their daily life. So if this is something that blesses you, we just hope that you'll feel free to share this with others so that they might be encouraged and challenged by it as well. If you have a Bible, go ahead and turn to 2 Samuel chapter 17, or 16 rather. Uh, we are going to be covering a lot of ground today. We're going to go back and discuss and talk about what Bill just read in a few minutes. Uh, but we're going to cover a lot of ground today as we look into the end of David's life. If you're new with us, if this is your first Sunday, uh, or you're trying to figure out kind of who we are and what we're doing this morning, uh, we're in a teaching series called Afflicted. And we've been looking at the life of David and just seeing how there are things that happen in his life that cause affliction, pain, hardship, difficulty, turmoil whatever synonyms you would like to use that would go along with the word afflicted. But for David, some of those things come from outside sources. Other things come from his own life. Some are just circumstantial. Uh, but we're going to see today that David brings some more affliction into his life based on some of his personal choices and the things that he does or rather doesn't do. And so David over his life has held a lot of different titles, right? When you think about King David, you think about him being first a shepherd. We're introduced to David as a shepherd. Uh, and then he becomes a musician musician uh, for the king. He's, he's a warrior. He's the guy that killed Goliath. And then he became the, uh, the uh, ruler over a lot of the uh, armies of, of King Saul and was the captain of the bodyguard of King Saul. And he's just this warrior. And then after Saul dies, David becomes king. And so he has all these different titles. Most of them are pretty impressive. Today, we're going to see a title that's not so impressive. And if you're taking notes, just write this down, that we're going to find that what David has going for him today or going against him today is that David is a passive parent. He's a passive father. And that there are stories that come into play in David's life and situations that David faces that because of the way he simply works things out in his home, it brings a lot of conflict and tension and chaos and death into his life. And so we're going to be walking through a lot of that today. But before we get into the story we just heard read to us, I want us to recap just a little bit about what we talked about last week, because we looked at the story of David and Bathsheba in this event in David's life where David saw a woman bathing on a rooftop, had her brought to the palace, slept with her, and then sent her home. He finds out that she's pregnant, and in order to cover up this affair that he has, he has her husband killed. After he dies, he brings Bathsheba to the palace, and he marries her and makes her his wife. And so in the process of these things taking place, David thinks he's kind of covered everything up. He thinks he's on a good path until a guy named Nathan comes to David and calls him out on his sin and says, hey, I want you to know that you have sinned against God. And he calls David out on these things. And in the process of David confessing his sin and repenting of his sin, he goes, that's great, David, and God has forgiven you, but there are still going to be consequences for the sin in your life, right? And that's true for all of us. Even when we confess our sin, repent of our sin, our sin still carries consequences. You can think of things that you've done that you're like, oh, that was really stupid. And it was a momentary thing, but you've carried the penalties of it with you for a long time in your life now. There are just consequences that come because of sinful actions. And so for David, he's given three things. He's told, number one, the immediate consequence you're gonna face is that the child that's born to Bathsheba is going to die. Number two is going to be a little bit further out kind of thing, David, but the sword is never going to depart from your house. For the rest of your life, there's going to be animosity and strife within your own family members, and there is going to be a sword that's always present in the house of David. 
And then number three, he says, David, this thing that you did very privately with Bathsheba that took place, that same thing is going to happen from someone close to you, and it's going to be very public for all of Israel to see. These are going to be the consequences that you're going to live with. And so David is in the middle of knowing these things when we come to this story that we had read to us this morning. And you can uh, essentially, what I would encourage you guys to do this week is go back into uh, 2 Samuel, starting at chapter 13, and read through the rest of 2 Samuel. Take some time this week and just read the rest of the story as it unfolds. And then you're going to get into 1 Kings chapter 1, which is where we're going to end today. But I would encourage you just to get the full picture of the, the story here and read that for yourself. We're not going to have time today. If I tried to read all of those passages to us, we'd be here a long time. So we're going to summarize some things today, all right? Uh, but here's what we're going to start out with. When David has a son named Amnon who develops a crush, and if you were reading that with us and you were kind of going, hmm, doing some math here, and it sounded like she and he, their half-brother and sister, you're absolutely right. That's the deal. Right, and so you've got uh, David is the father of both of these children, but there's different mothers involved. And so uh, for Amnon, he goes, I developed this crush. I think I'm in love with my, my half-sister Tamar, and he can't stop thinking about her to the point it makes, her, it makes him sick, right? Like he is just lovesick. It's like a middle schooler. It's weird, right? And so he's going, I just can't even stop thinking about her. And there's this plan that gets developed about having her come to him. And then eventually she comes into his bedroom and you read the story, you heard the story. He rapes his sister. And the Bible tells us right after that, that he hated her with such intensity. He hated her more than he loved her. Because here's the reality. This wasn't love. This was lust. And here's the truth. We never love what we lust after. And as David hears about this, and as news gets back to him, Tamar is told to get out, and Absalom comes to her and goes, hey, you come live with me now. He's, his, Absalom is Tamar's brother. He goes, you come and live with me, and you be with me, and, and just put this out of your mind. And it's kind of the idea is, I'll take care of this. You don't have to worry about this. I'll take care of this. And here's what we find with David when he hears about these things, 2 Samuel chapter 13, verse 21 says, when King David heard all this, he was furious. Full stop. That's where the story ends for David. What? I'm furious about this thing that happened. You going to do anything about it? Nah, not going to do anything. I'm mad, but I'm not going to step in. I'm not going to intervene. And we see David's passivity start to come to light. We're told that he's furious, but no action is taken, no discipline is taken, no rebuke happens. Everyone just kind of goes back to acting like nothing ever happened. Everybody except for Absalom, who starts to create this plan in his heart and his mind of how he's going to get back for his sister. And so here's what we find as the story continues to unfold. Absalom eventually comes to the king and says, hey, I want to throw a banquet for all the royal family. Let all my brothers and sisters come. And he invites David. And David says, no, I don't want to be, uh, I don't want to be a hardship to you. So you can have the banquet, but I'm not going to show up. So Absalom does. And at the banquet, his plan unfolds. And he kills Amnon at the banquet. And immediately after killing him, so the sword has come into David's home, just like it was promised. And immediately after killing him, Absalom flees the country and he leaves. And now we get David again. The messenger comes in and starts to tell what's going on. David, your, your son has been killed. Absalom killed Amnon. What are you going to do? And guess what David does? Nothing. He doesn't do anything. 
He doesn't step forward. He doesn't go after Absalom. He doesn't send guards to go and retrieve him and bring him home. He doesn't do anything. He just lets this thing unhappen, this thing happen and unfold. And so here's what goes on over the next three years. Absalom lives outside of Israel as kind of an exile until he finally finds his way back to Jerusalem. He gets permission to come back. David doesn't see him, but he gets to come back. And in the process of all these things happening, Absalom goes to the city gates and just starts being an advocate for the people. And he starts a political smear campaign against his father. And he starts telling anybody who will listen to him, man, you guys have all these problems and the king won't hear you. If only you had a representative to the king who would listen to your problems and do something about them. Because David's certainly not going to do anything about your problems, right? He's this king sitting up in his palace and having his food brought to him. And he's just living life high on the hog. That's what my dad would say. Uh, And so I grew up in the country. And so that was the statement, right? And so he's going, this guy, he's doing all these things. And nobody's paying attention to you guys. And so he starts going, if if only you had a representative. And Absalom starts winning the hearts of the people. And they start coming to him with their issues and their problems. And eventually, Absalom just proclaims himself to be king. And the people get behind him. And this treachery works because David flees the palace. He has to leave. He takes his wives and his children and he goes. And Absalom takes the throne. And now, for the first time since the days of King Saul, David's on the run again. Just like he was in those days where he had to hide in caves and he had to disappear and find a way to be uh, untraceable, he's doing that same thing again. His passivity brought affliction in the form of rebellion. Like David's story and his passivity just issues rebellion into the life of his family and into the kingdom of Israel. Just because David's not willing to get engaged and involved in the life of his kids Now, there's a lot that the Bible is silent on when it comes to David's parenting. Uh, We can draw some conclusions. Uh, He wasn't really involved in his kid's life, it seems. Uh, And there's a few reasons for that. Number one, David had a lot of wives. Number two, David had a lot of kids. And you can't be involved in everybody's life, right? And so David doesn't have deep relationship. And so some people might go, man, this is just, again, a way that the Bible endorses uh, a polygamous relationship and marry whoever you want, as many people as you want, and have all the kids you want. And you go, no, 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 that's not really why this is in the story. And that's not what the story is trying to say. In fact, you can look at some things and go, well, why does the Bible even include that? Isn't it true that God used a lot of people in his plan for the nation of Israel, who married lots of women, had lots of kids. Yes, it's true. God did do that. He overlooked some things. But every time the Bible talks about these things, when you can go, this is why God's trying to show us that it's not right, that it's wrong, because every single time it's there, you find heartache and chaos and misery attached to it. It's descriptive for sure. It is not prescriptive. God is not going, I want you guys to see this, so you'll go out and do the same thing. He's going, learn from this. It's a mess when you do this thing this way. God has a different plan for marriage. God has a different plan for parenting. Even from the very beginning, when he brings Adam and Eve together, God's statement is, like, this reason, a man will leave his father and his mother and be united to his wife, singular, and the two will become one flesh, Right? And so we see this picture that God unfolds and goes, I want you to see that marriage is designed by God 
for two people in this intimate relationship that they become one, husband and wife. And when you try to take things outside of God's design, it goes off the rails really, really fast. And so for us, as we see this today, we start to understand that the same thing rings true in our culture, in our lives, as we apply this idea of passivity or even absent parenting. We see how much breakdown there is in society when parents aren't in their kids' lives, especially us men. Like when we talk about this and think about this, for us to be passive in the way that we parent and just go, well, I work so hard all day, I'm not going to come home and do anything. I'm just going to chill out on the couch and watch baseball or football or whatever it is that's your thing, and I'm just not going to get involved. I'll let my wife do all this stuff, and I'm just not there. Or when we break off from our family and just go our own way, that brings a whole other kind of mess into the situation. And here's what the U.S. Census Bureau tells us in the National Fatherhood Initiative in the last year, some surveys that have come out. When you take men out of the home, there are some train wrecks that happen in families. And here's what we find. You take a man out of the home, children under 18, four times greater risk of poverty. They're more likely to have behavioral problems. There's a two times greater risk of infant mortality. They're more likely to go to prison. They're more likely to commit crime. Teenage girls are seven times more likely to become pregnant as a teenager when the dad is not in the home. They're more likely to face abuse and neglect. Kids are more likely to abuse drugs and alcohol. They're two times more likely to suffer obesity. They're two times more likely to drop out of school. The critical role of fathers in the home is so valuable. And it's not just something that's a U.S. thing. This is a global thing. We find this play out all over the world. You take husbands out of the home. You take fathers out of the home. You have dads that are not engaged in raising their kids. It's a mess. And David is finding these things to be true in his life. By the time we get to 2 Samuel 16, we find even greater consequences than this for David. This is the time in David's life that he's figuring out that going outside of God's design for family is going to get him in trouble. When we go outside of God's design, there's these consequences. And David's learning all this in the latter years of his life. We're getting to the end of the story now with David. And we're seeing as he's reflecting back and thinking back on what his life has looked like, that it's been a mess. Just because he hasn't done things God's way. And so when we get to 2 Samuel chapter 16, we find these greater consequences for David's passivity. He's back to running for his life. Absalom's claimed the throne. And now Absalom goes to some counsel. And he goes, I want you guys to tell me what I should do now that I've inherited or usurped the throne of my father. I want to make sure that all of Israel knows I'm the guy and David's out of the picture. So what should I do? How do I make a name for myself? And here's the advice that he gets. Check this out. 2 Samuel 16, 20 and 22. It says, Absalom asked Ahithophel, Give us your advice. What should we do? And Ahithophel answered, Sleep with your father's concubines, whom he left to take care of the palace. Then all Israel will hear that you have made yourself obnoxious to your father, and the hands of everyone with you will be even more resolute. So they pitched a tent for Absalom on the roof, and he slept with his father's concubines in the sight of all Israel. Remember what God's told him his consequence of his sin would be? This thing that you did very privately, David, is going to be done by someone close to you very publicly. And we see it unfold. That rooftop that David walked on the night that he saw Bathsheba, now there's a tent pitched on it. And Absalom is sleeping with David's concubines in the sight of all of the country to see. 
Right? You just start to realize what a mess this is. And you start to see how terrible these things are. The very things God said would happen do. And so the only way David is able to get back to the throne is war breaks out between Absalom and his men and David and his men. And in the middle of this chaos and this fighting and hundreds of people are killed. And then Absalom, who if you read the story, it's crazy to read. Absalom, we're told from the very beginning of the story, is a handsome guy. He has long hair that he only cuts once a year. Like it just grows. And as Absalom is fleeing from his father to try to escape this war, his hair's bouncing around as he's riding his horse and he gets caught on a branch and wrapped around a branch and Absalom is literally hanging by his hair when a guy comes along and sees him and puts three spears in his heart. And you're like, how did we get here? How do we get to this place? I mean, it's a mess. And David's brokenhearted over all of this. But the sword is in his home, and it's not going to leave throughout his lifetime. And so we see all of these things continue to unfold. David gets back to the throne, but it's not going to be over for him. There's one more story, an event in David's life that I want us to look at this morning to try to put a bow on the life of David. And I want us to see again just this moment of passivity that brings pain into his life. And so here's what we find now. David is much older and he's at the end of his line. There's been discussion behind closed doors with David and his wife Bathsheba that the second child she had with David, whose name was Solomon, would be king. When David dies, there's a handshake and an agreement behind closed doors. Your son Solomon will be the next king. Problem. It's never announced publicly by David to the kingdom. So as David is now bedridden, one of his other kids gets an idea. Let's check this out together. First Kings chapter one, verses one through six. When David was very old, he could not keep warm even when they put covers over him. So his attendants said to him, let us look for a young virgin to serve the king and take care of him. She can lie beside him so that our Lord, the king may keep warm. Then they searched throughout Israel for a beautiful young woman and found Abishag, a Shunammite. And they brought her to the king the woman was very beautiful. She took care of the king and waited on him, but the king had no sexual relations with her. Now, Adonijah, whose mother was Haggith, put himself forward and said, I will be king. So he got chariots and horses ready with 50 men to run ahead of him. His father, who's David, had never rebuked him by asking, why do you behave as you do? He was also very handsome and who was born next after Absalom. So in the absence of a public declaration of who's going to be the next king, Adonijah just goes, well, hey, if nobody else wants to do it, king sounds pretty good to me. I'll do it. I'll be king. And he gets his guys together and they run ahead and they go to this city and they pronounce him he's going to be king. And it says, and in the course of all of this, David had never asked him, why do you behave like you do? Like as a parent, we're kind of told here, reading between the lines, that his life has been full of rebellion and doing dumb things, and he's just kind of a weird guy. And his life has always been full of things that don't look like they're supposed to for a son of the king and for a follower of God. And yet David had never stepped forward into his life and goes, hey, can we grab coffee? I just think I need to have a conversation with you. Let's just sit down and let me ask you a question. Why are you like you are? Anybody got teenagers in the room, like, ever thought about having this conversation? Like, what are, you, what are you doing? 
You don't, and I know this because I have teenagers, and it feels so weird, right? It's like, I don't want to sit down with my kids and be like, why are you act like you do? Because they'll go, Dad, you're dumb. Shut up. And it's like, oh, yeah, good. Good talk, son. Let's go. All right, and then it's over. And David, I imagine he has a lot of these same kind of feelings. Like, I'm not going to interfere. I'm not going to get involved. I'm not going to engage. It's just easier not to ask the hard question. And it was easier until Abinadab stepped forward and said, I'll take the throne. I'll step up. I'll make a mess of the kingdom. And now David's forced to act. Now David has to make a public declaration. And guess what happens? In order for Solomon to gain the throne, more fighting, more sword, more bloodshed, more of, Absalom, or more of David's children killed. And it's all because David is passive. It's all because he won't just step forward and go, guys, let's talk. Like, let's deal with the issues that we have facing our family. There's a way that God instructs us to live. There are things that are right and things that are wrong. And we need to talk about this stuff. And because David doesn't do that, it brings a lot of heartache into his life. And so you have to wonder if some of that pain and heartache could have been avoided with just some simple conversations. And so I want us to close this morning looking at three observations from these accounts that we kind of tra traced our way through today and see some things from David's life that you and I might could put to work and, and take some, some uh, things from and apply to our lives. So here's what I want us to see first. David was forgiven by God, but it seems like he hadn't forgiven himself. Like when David sinned with Bathsheba, there was forgiveness that was issued to him by God, but... From that point forward, we see a different King David than we do before that event. And I have to wonder if on some level, David just didn't go, man, my sin, I know what I did and I can't recover from that. And because of what I did, I certainly can't step into my kids' lives and hold them accountable to things. So he doesn't. That's not how forgiveness works. When God forgives us, no matter what we've done, we're forgiven fully, totally. We step into freedom to go, yeah, I have things in my past, but look how good God is that he forgives me and he clothes me in righteousness. It's not about how great I become after I forgive, uh, ask for forgiveness for my sins. It's about God clothing us in his righteousness. It's about us saying, I want my sin to be taken off of me. And Jesus saying, I'll take it. Jesus takes our sin off of us. It's nailed to the cross with him. And God puts the righteousness of his son on the cross over you and over me. Because this is how you can step forward and continue on in life and keep moving forward and not just kind of shrink back and go, well, I guess that sin I committed has got me done for for the rest of my life. I'm, I just, I'm done. That's where Satan wants you to live. Satan wants to convince you that you can't get up from your past failures. But the cross of Jesus always says there's forgiveness and grace and mercy available to you no matter what. But you have to learn to forgive yourself as well. And listen, I know that's easy for me to say, and you go, well, pastor, it's easy. Easy for you to say standing up there looking at all of us, and we don't get to talk back to you today. So you just say what you need to say, right? Listen, I know how it feels. You think there aren't Sundays that I get up here and go, I can't preach to these people. I know what's going on in my heart. I know where I have sin. I know where I have brokenness. 
I'm supposed to stand up here in front of you and tell you how to live godly lives when I know what's going on in my heart, in my mind, where I'm broken? But praise God for the forgiveness that comes through Jesus that restores us. It says it's not about you. It's about him. It's about his righteousness clothing you so you can keep moving forward. So we need to learn to forgive ourselves so that we can keep moving in the grace of God. Here's the second thing that I would say to us. Don't coast toward the end of your life. If you have physical health and mental capacity, don't retire from your spiritual leadership and responsibilities, especially in your home and in the church. Unfortunately, there's this thing that kind of comes about where we get to a certain age and where it's like, I'm retiring from work, and I guess that means I'm also going to retire from the stuff that I do at church. So I'm not going to volunteer anymore, and I'm not going to be engaged anymore, and I'm not going to step in and help anybody anymore. I'm just going to kind of take a step back. It's now somebody else's turn. I've been doing that for a long time. Show me in the Bible where that's the reality. There's no retirement plan from your salvation in the Bible. There's not a spiritual 401k. Like you're not checking out and going, well, I served in the children's ministry for 20 years. Guess I shouldn't do that anymore. I'm retired now. Nope. You keep serving. You keep using your gifts and your passions and your abilities and your talents for the glory of God and his kingdom. There are still people to invest in in our church, in the life of our church. David kind of gets to this place where it looks like his life just goes on cruise control. He just doesn't get involved anymore. He doesn't go to war when he's supposed to go to war. He doesn't check in with his kids the way that he's supposed to. He doesn't engage himself in difficult things that are happening in his kingdom. He just kind of checks out. And it costs him big time. We can't be like that. And so we need to stay engaged in our life. If we have breath and we have mental capacity and we have health, we need to be involved. God has a role for you to play as long as you're physically and mentally able in guiding the next generation to know and follow after Jesus. In fact, and I know this is really last minute, but here's what I would like to involve and encourage some of you to do. I'm going to talk to the old people in the room for just a minute, and you know who you are. (laughs) I'm not going to draw any boundaries. I'm not going to ask to put hands up. I'm not going to put dates or times on it. But if you got up at like 4 o'clock this morning, this probably is for you, all right? (laughs) And I know it's last minute, but tomorrow morning, I would love for us to have breakfast together. I'd like for us to meet here at the church. I'll bring donuts. I know some of you, by 8 a.m., it's already like getting close to lunchtime, but I'm going to bring the donuts at 8 a.m., and I want you to show up here, and I want us just to be able to sit and talk about our church and pray together and ask God to show us what's the role that you have continually in the life of this church as a retired person or as an older person that I don't want you to check out and just go, well, I just come to church on Sundays. That's my role. No, it's not. Paul tells Timothy, we instruct older believers to invest in the younger believers. That's what our role looks like. So let's get together and discuss how that works. I want to learn from you. I want to gain from your wisdom and your experience. And I want to set up a monthly time for us. If we need to do it at Perkins at 5 a.m. in the future, we'll do that. But tomorrow, (laughs) 8 a.m., right here, all right? I'll bring the donuts, you bring the wisdom, and we'll sit down and talk together, okay? So that's going to be tomorrow. Here's the last thing I want us to look at, and then we're going to be done. David's life reminds us to look to Jesus. Now, you could ask yourself the question when we're reading through these, and trust me, there are some awkward things we've talked about the last couple of weeks, and I did mental gymnastics to figure out how to talk about some of these things, especially with kids in the room. (laughs) 
But there are some things that happen in the Bible that you go, why did they even put that in there? Like, shouldn't we have not included those stories? And the truth is, there's two things that I think are reasons why these things are included in Scripture. Number one, I think it's proof that it's true and that we should believe the Bible. Because when we look at this, you would go, if my job was to make David, who's the greatest king Israel's ever known, to be the man and to be able to say he had the greatest kingdom, he had the greatest army, he had the greatest family, it was David and David was awesome and David rocked and David, David, David. If I was going to do that, I wouldn't have put these stories in there. Right? Like you wouldn't have written this. You could have been killed. I don't know. But they include it because it's true. And the second reason I think that it's here, I think it's supposed to point us to Jesus and to go, you know what? David was a great king. He united the kingdom of Israel. He did all these great things. He won these battles. He did all this great stuff. But David is still a mess. If we're going to look to David and go, that's where our hope is, we're going to fall short. Because David's a mess just like we are. We need a greater king. And that's why when God wants to redeem mankind, he sends the greater king. It's not David. It's Jesus. He goes, I'll send my perfect son to this earth. And he'll live and he'll be just like us, but he'll never sin. And he'll walk with me in perfect relationship. And then he'll offer up his life for you so that you can live in the freedom and forgiveness that's offered to him and have a relationship with the Father. That's the power of why Jesus comes. The gospel is that Jesus came to this earth. He died on a cross. He was buried in a tomb, but he didn't stay in the tomb. He rose back from the dead. Then he ascended to his Father in heaven, and now we're waiting for him to come back again. And when he comes, he's going to bring the kingdom that David couldn't establish. He's going to bring the enduring kingdom of grace and mercy and love and victory and hope and joy. That's what we're waiting on. And so when we read these stories, they're meant to make us go, this, I'm, I just, it's falling short. This isn't it. This can't be it, right? Like this is as good as it gets. No, it's not. That's why you need to keep moving forward to get to Jesus. And they go, that's it. He's the one. He's the guy we're looking for. And so this morning as we close, I want us just to ask the question, and what do I need to do about this relationship with Jesus if I don't have one? What would it look like to, to begin a relationship with Jesus, to ask for forgiveness of my sins, to commit my life to him, to fall in love with him, to be changed by him and to walk with him? And if you do have a relationship with Jesus, then man, are you walking in that? Are you following after him the way that you should? Are you doing the things he prescribes so that you can have freedom and victory all of your life? If you want to know Jesus this morning, if you don't have a relationship with him, there's so a couple of ways that you can let us know about that. One, you can catch me or some of our team out in the gathering area this morning and just share with us, hey, I want to know what it means to be a follower of Jesus. Number two, if that's an awkward conversation for you to have, there's a connection card in the chair backs right around you. Grab one of those cards and fill it out with your information and check the box on the back that says, I want to know about following Jesus. Put it in our giving boxes or hand it to me on your way out. And we'll contact you this week. We'd love to have that conversation with you. And then last, I want to invite you to come back next week as we wrap up this series. Because we're going to look at some things 
to find out what happens in all different kinds of afflictions that we face in life and how do we prevail as followers of God. Thanks so much for checking out our message today. We hope you are challenged and blessed by it. We want to invite you to come and worship with us in person if you live in the Tri-Cities area. We meet on Sunday mornings at 9 and 1045 a.m. at One Fellowship Point in Kingsport, Tennessee. You can also get more information about us from our website or our mobile app. Have a great day.